0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit NICUconnections.com backslash
1: NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator podcast. It is Monday. We are at the Next Symposium, and we are very excited to bring you some of the speakers that are featured uh, at today's Next Society Symposium. Daphna, Daphna, how's it going today?
0: Well, we've been really looking forward to this trip and to meet with some of the uh, you know wonderful people that are working so hard at the Next Society, um, and certainly with with collabor collaborators that are move, moving the moving the field forward right so the mm-hmm. the goal is a a world without neck nah. so That's you can't right. wait That's to right. hear more
1: and we are very excited to bring you today uh dr gail bessner i know I know Jen Canvasser said we have to go on a first name basis but at least for at least while I'm introducing you, Dr. Bessner, I'm, I'm gonna call you Dr. Gail Bessner. And then then we can go on a first name basis after that. Uh, Dr. Gail Bessner is the chief of pediatric surgery at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She is also a principal and investigator in the Center for Perinatal Research at the Research Institute at Nationwide Children's Hospital and Associate Program Director of the Pediatric Surgery Residency Program. She holds the H. William Clatworthy Junior Professorship in Surgery at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and is a professor of surgery and pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Gail, thank you so much for making the time to be on with us today.
2: My pleasure, Ben Uh, and Daphna. Thank you so much for the invitation.
1: No, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for, for, for making the time. And and so I, I wanted to maybe start this um, this conversation by asking you, what is it that you are talking to us about today at uh, the NEC symposium?
2: So we're going to be talking about a novel therapeutic strategy for necrotizing enterocolitis. And um, it's a medication, a medical strategy which might sound odd coming from a surgeon, because as you noted, I am the chief of pediatric surgery at Nationwide Children's Hospital, but I'm a firm believer that necrotizing enterocolitis really should not be considered a surgical disease. And I feel very strongly that it's a disease that should be prevented with a therapeutic regimen perhaps including novel medications in order to prevent neck. And the reason that I think that that's so important is because there are varying forms of neck, but in its most aggressive form, you can start with a prematurely born baby or sometimes even a full-term baby that looks perfectly fine at noon and by 6 p.m. can be dead from necrotizing enterocolitis. And so given the incredible aggressiveness that the disease um, often presents with, it makes a lot of sense to me to prevent the disease before it occurs, rather than trying to catch up after the disease has already occurred. And, Um, You know, to become a pediatric surgeon, you have to first become a general surgeon, and then you do um, specialized training in pediatric surgery. And I did that training between 1989 and 1991. And as a first-year pediatric surgery fellow in 1989 in the fall, just a few days after I started, um, we were consulted for a a premature baby in the neonatal intensive care unit named Baby Boy Lewis and he weighed 1900 grams at that time which in those days was considered really really mm-hmm. small not so much in these days cuz we can some you know uh keep babies that are 300 to 400 grams alive now but in those days he was really quite small and he had necrotizing enterocolitis and we had to operate and so i remember vividly doing the operation And we were able to save enough of his intestines that he, you know, would be able to live. And he did live and he did very well. And I thought it was the best operation that Mm. I ever did. I thought nothing could be more exciting than this, but I can tell you that having done this for over 30 years now, If we could find something that would alleviate the need for pediatric surgeons to do this operation, Mm. I can freely speak for every pediatric surgeon in the country and in the world who would be thrilled to the skies to never have to do Mm. this operation again. So I really love the motto of the Neck Society to create a world without neck, because my vision is to create a department of surgery that never had to operate on them mm-hmm. throughout the, you know, the world. And that would really be the ultimate goal for me.
1: Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's such a, that's such a nice sentiment, especially as you said, coming from a surgeon. And, <laughs> and I think what's even more interesting about your presentation today at the, at the next symposium is that one of these uh, therapeutic approaches that you are uh, talking to us about involves probiotics. And, and so you are really getting into um, one of the most debated subjects right now in neonatology. Um, and so can you uh, tell us a little bit what your thoughts are on, before, before we talk about uh, lactobacillus ruteri, uh, can you tell us a little bit what your thoughts are currently on, on probiotics and where, and where we stand as a field um, in neonatology?
2: So I think that one of the challenges with probiotic therapy is that nobody really knows what the best probiotic to use is, whether we should use single a single probiotic strain or multiple strain probiotics. And it's really unclear as to what the dose and the dosing interval is. But one of the biggest challenges is that there's no FDA-approved probiotic therapy that can be used for newborns in the neonatal intensive care unit. So as you know, you can go to the health food store or the drugstore and buy hundreds of different types of probiotics with no problem at all. But what you see on the label is almost never what's actually in the bottle. Mm -hmm. They could be contaminated with um, unwanted bacterial strains or there could be fungal contamination. And so you're never really sure what you're giving to the patient if you're using this medically. And when it comes to premature babies... They're the most vulnerable patients that we take care of throughout the whole entire hospital. And we really have to make sure that whatever it is that we're giving them, whatever therapy it ends up being that's going to cure neck, has to um, be able to have an excellent chance of preventing babies from getting the disease without causing harm. So one of the problems is that you're giving live bacteria and so you could have a problem with the bacteria itself and as i mentioned there there have been reports of contamination of the preparations and although probiotics have been studied throughout our country and other countries in even randomized control trials every single one of those trials delivered the probiotics in what we call their planktonic or free living state our strategy is Quite different. We desire to administer probiotics in their biofilm state. So, bacteria actually prefer to live in a community called a biofilm in which they self produce a matrix that they surround themselves with that contains DNAs and RNAs and proteins that protect the bacteria from harm. Now, if you're a pathogenic bacteria, then doctors hate biofilms because it Hmm. stops us from treating bacterial infections with antibiotics. And so um, patients can get very sick if they have a pathogenic bacteria that secretes a biofilm. But what we're talking about is inducing beneficial bacteria, probiotic bacteria, to make a biofilm. And if we have a strategy that can do that, then it makes those beneficial bacteria more resistant to host defenses, more resistant to antibiotic therapy, more capable of competing with pathogenic bacteria, and more able to sustain the acidic environment of the stomach so that the probiotics can get through the stomach and make it to the intestines where they have to exert their beneficial effects. Mm -hmm. So our strategy is really quite simple although also quite novel. And what we do is we start with a beneficial bacteria known as lactobacillus ruteri. And one of the advantages of that particular bacteria is that it can make antibacterial substances called Reuterin or anti-inflammatory substances like histamine and infection and inflammation are two um, pathogenic processes that occur during necrotizing enterocolitis. So we start already with a beneficial bacteria that has good underlying properties. And then we incubate those bacteria with little tiny microspheres. And when those bacteria adhere to the surface of the microsphere, they start to produce biofilm. But the system is even much more powerful than that because we can load those microspheres with beneficial substances called prebiotic substances and we can influence the bacteria to do what we want them To do so, we can influence the bacteria to make more antibacterial reuterin or more anti inflammatory histamine or a lot more biofilm. And in our animal models of necrotizing enterocolitis, when we um, treat animals with this probiotic preparation in its biofilm state, we can almost um, eliminate the development of necrotizing enterocolitis. And when we compare lactobacillus ruderi administration in its biofilm state compared to in its free-living planktonic state, the biofilm state is much more highly active.
1: I would like to to backtrack a a little bit because I think many people, especially myself, I was not really familiar with this difference Mm -hmm. between the planktonic state and the biofilm state. And I think that's already a point you've, you've explained that's so fascinating where in its biofilm state where the bacteria is surrounded by matrix of DNA, proteins, lipids, and oligosaccharides, it really has a much better chance, as you've explained, to survive against the natural host defenses against bacteria in general. And so my my question to you is when you're describing this um, new novel delivery system where um, the probiotic is being loaded onto these microspheres, you're basically telling us that you are creating the biofilm outside Ex ex vivo basically. You are making the biofilm out in the lab and then and then introducing the bacteria as a biofilm into the organism. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Yes.
0: Was that the challenge of why it hasn't been used before? Or or can you can can you find the lactobacillus in the biofilm Steve?
2: I don't know that um others have really investigated the powers of administering a beneficial bacteria in the biofilm state, because just as you weren't aware of it, probably, you know, most other Mm -hmm. people aren't aware of it, but most importantly, there are no probiotics that have ever been delivered clinically in the biofilm state until ours. And I'm kind of going to get to how that happened, you know, with Mm. FDA approval, but although the probiotics have been delivered. Lactobacillus ruderai has been studied in many clinical trials. It's always in the planktonic state, as has every other probiotic. Nobody has ever asked the FDA to administer any probiotic in its biofilm state. So thank you for your question, because it's a really important question that gets to the uniqueness and the innovation that we're using.
1: How did this idea... Come about? How did you come? Up, how did you figure out? How did you come up with this probiotic? Where did you read about it? How did you encounter this probiotic? I'm always interested in the inception stories of these research projects, so I, I, yeah, I have yeah. to ask.
2: Yeah. So I guess in a way we'll call it serendipity. Uh-huh. Uh, um, about eight years ago now, I was giving a talk to the gastroenterologists in our um, GI department here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And it was on necrotizing enterocolitis and potential therapies for necrotizing enterocolitis. Because before I really became invested in probiotics, I was very interested in growth factor therapy and stem cell therapy. So I was presenting that to the gastroenterologists. And the chief of gastroenterology at the end of the talk said to me, do you know Steve Goodman and Mike Bailey, other investigators that work in our, you know, nationwide children's hospital uh, research um, uh, programs. And I didn't. And he said to me, you need to meet with them right away, because your work is very important. You're going to collaborate with them. And this is going to lead to something really important. So immediately, like, you know, (laughs) within a day, I contacted these two individuals. And really, everything that I am presenting in my talk is a collaboration between three different Separate but synergistic laboratories at Nationwide Children's Hospital. My laboratory has a lot of expertise in necrotizing enterocolitis and in animal models of the disease. The laboratory of Dr. Stephen Goodman is, uh, has tremendous expertise in biofilms and the laboratory of Dr. Michael Bailey in our research institute has tremendous, um, experience, um, in, in, uh, the microbiome of the gut. And so it's really been a tremendous collaboration, and um, the three of us have much more than just an additive effect. It really is quite synergistic, and mm-hmm. we, um, you know, early on, were very successful with NIH funding from the beginning of our collaboration, and um, and we really worked together as a wonderful team. So that's how the whole thing started, and I really believe that had I not collab, t- if had I not taken the advice of the gastroenterology chief, mm-hmm. and. and and, you know, instituted this collaboration. I don't think we'd be anywhere, you know, near where we are now. Mm-hmm. So basically, I collaborated with somebody that, you know, is one of the world's leaders in, in biofilms and in the microbiome. So that's how it all started.
1: But it's a testament to also you taking on this chance at the end of a presentation where God knows how many people make comments and saying, hey, what you presented is great. You should probably do this. And some people say, oh, you can just shrug it off and say, well, you know, I'm focusing on this. I'm not looking for collaborators, but you actually seek these people out. And so it's uh, it's a kudos to you. Yeah,
2: well, I was really glad I did. It was really good <laughs> I'm glad I took that good
0: advice. I think and, it also speaks to how important collaboration is, right? And, and. We talk about breaking down silos, quote unquote, but it really is about finding people who you may not have ever thought about, um, collaborating with before. I do know, I, you know, I say that also that is one of the missions of the, the next society is really to get people to collaborate, to meet each other, to go across disciplines and both during the conference and after the conference so that we can keep the like just pushing forward. With these really kind of landmark um, ideas,
2: yeah, I think the point you're making is really, really so important, and we can do much better science as team science than trying to do it in individual silos. So, so thanks for pointing that mm-hmm. out, and I fully, wholeheartedly agree.
1: And and so the the animal data for uh, the use of Lactobacillus ruderai. Um, in animal models of neck and, and and some of the data that you're presenting today is quite impressive.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, so for many years, we have used rodents as the species in which we did our um, neck research studies. And rodents are a good animal model because mm-hmm. you can order many of them. And of course our models are in newborns because the disease occurs in newborns um, and it's a relatively cost-effective model. However, when you look at the newborn prematurely delivered wrap pup, which is about the size of the distal half of your thumb, it really doesn't look like the premature babies that we take care of in the neonatal intensive care unit. However, Prematurely delivered piglets are about the same size as the premature babies that we care for they have many, many similarities in the intestinal tract as the babies that we take care of. And so one of the things that we thought was really important in transitioning our therapy to human beings was to see if we could replicate our, our very promising results that we got in rodents in a large animal model. And we, choose, we chose to use the piglet, the prematurely delivered piglet, as our large animal model. and. Before we did that, I want to just highlight something I think is really important in the field. Our goal as physicians taking care of babies with neck, of course, is to save them from dying from the disease. Mm-hmm. But other experts in the field have really pointed out to us that it's not just the survival of the baby that's important. It's the neurodevelopment that the baby undergoes. If they're lucky enough to survive neck. And other investigators, neonatologists, surgeons, and others, have identified the fact that babies that survive neck have neurodevelopmental delays. And so when they get old enough to test them, they have learning disabilities and other disabilities that we would really, really like to. Prevent so that not only can we save the life of the babies, but we can make them learn better as they get older, and you know have less developmental impairments. And so, in our rodent models of neck, when we um, we did these studies in rats, we not only found that the probiotic preparation that we're talking about decreases mortality and intestinal injury in our animal model of neck, but in the survivors of neck that we allowed to get older until we could test these rats at, you know, about two months of age, we found that they learned better, they had fewer learning disabilities, and there was less inflammation in their brains. And we were really like super excited about those results Mm -hmm. because not only perhaps can we save the lives of patients, but we can make them smarter as they, you know, grow and get older. So we thought that was just really, really fascinating and very important. Um, Moving forward then, uh, we did, of course, ask the FDA for approval to administer our, our probiotic preparation to human beings. In preparation for that. Even you know before we filled out that FDA application, we um, developed a robust pig model of neck in our laboratory because it makes a whole lot of sense that before you transition to a human being, it would be good to have collaborating results not only in rodents but also you know in a large animal model. And so we were able to reproduce our findings in pigs, which we th- think is very very important. And not only does our probiotic preparation protect the intestines from neck in pigs, but it also decreases inflammation in the brain of these piglets. So having all of that information, uh, we did go to the FDA a few years back already and asked for permission to do what we call phase one clinical trials in patients. And we, the good news is that we did get permission But the challenging part of it is is that the permission was granted to do adult trials because basically no new drugs have really ever been tested in newborn human babies before they're tested in adults. But that's okay; We got the foot in the door and Mm -hmm. um, we got permission from the FDA to trial this in adults. And the adults that we chose to look at were adults with autism. And you might ask, why on earth would we look at autism? Well, just as I described to you that necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease of the intestines that also affects the brains of these babies, that happens because of something called the gut-brain axis. The concept is that whatever is happening in your intestine affects your brain. Whatever happens in your brain affects the intestines. And there's crosstalk between those two really, really important organs. Well, autism is also a disease that highly affects the gut-brain axis. And you and I think of autism as a brain disease. But the reality is that although that's true, Over 50% of patients with autism have significant gastrointestinal complaints. And so the gut-brain axis is actively in play in autism. So we chose to make our phase one trial a trial of healthy human adults that happen to have autism. (laughs) We signed up uh, 15 patients, and I have to say that um, people were knocking at the doors to try to register for the trial because Mm -hmm. I think that families of patients with autism are so desperate for a cure that it was very easy to find the enrollees. Mm. The study was completed and published several months ago, and what we found was that the drug that we're talking about, which is lactobacillus ruteri in its biofilm state, which is called SB-121 in commercial terminology, we found that there were no negative consequences of giving it to human beings. Nobody had to withdraw from the study, but we found a really totally surprising finding. And that is that half of the patients had what we called a robust response to SB-121, And when you think about phase one clinical trials, which are really very small trials that are only intended to look at safety of a drug, uh, we didn't expect to see any efficacy. But there are questionnaires and other tests that one can do in patients with autism to um, grade their level of autism. And we found that half of the patients had surprisingly significant improvements in their autism scores. And that kind of really blew our minds because we just did not expect to see that. Um, But it's really a lovely and a wonderful result. So as we plan for a phase two trial in patients with autism, we can use those human data. And now we have robust pig data to show that SB 121 protects pigs from necrotizing enterocolitis we hope that we we can use those data in our armamentarium to now get approval from the FDA to begin a phase 1 clinical trial in newborns mm-hmm. but the other incredible challenge with developing a drug from the bench to the bedside is the incredible cost mm-hmm. that companies have to, you know, put out in order to bring a drug from the bench to the bedside. And the most recent estimates I heard is that it costs $2 billion, billion billion with a B, uh, uh-huh. to bring a drug to clinical use. And necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease that affects perhaps seven to 10,000 patients a year. Now, if you're the mother of that baby, then to you, that incidence is like 100%. -hmm. You know, that is your baby and your baby is at risk of um, harm from necrotizing enterocolitis. But if you're a drug company and your intention, of course, is to make money, then Mm -hmm. it's easier to envision that a drug company is going to want to invest in a drug that will cure heart attacks or stroke or cancer, which affects Hundreds of millions of patients a year rather than something that affects seven to 10,000 patients a year. So you have to find a company that's willing Mm -hmm. to toe the line and, you know, put in the effort and the money for a disease that is what we call an orphan disease. It, you know, doesn't affect very many patients. But fortunately, Drs. Goodman and Bailey and I are the scientific co founders of a company called Scioto Biosciences Mm -hmm. and the company is invested in continuing to push this therapy forward so that we can not only treat patients with autism but we oh, yeah. treat patients with necrotizing enterocolitis as well so that's my you know goal in the next year or two is to get FDA approval for patients with necrotizing enterocolitis so that we can hopefully repeat these studies in babies at risk of getting necrotizing enterocolitis
0: I mean that's it's a remarkable journey. It sounds like what you guys have been able to do, especially by this uh, kind of Trojan horse—one of the of the uh, bacteria—but also um, in 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 your research strategy, right? Into to see could this help other populations? And actually, that brings me back to some of your other slides. You know, we talk you know we're clinicians uh, Ben and I and most of the time on the podcast we're talking about the clinical findings and features of neck but your slides are really a good reminder of just the significant amount of inflammation and destruction that happens to the intestine and so uh, that was my question was you know uh, are there other uses for this in other inflammatory GI problems That's my first question. And my second is you do have a slide that shows us beautifully this neck plus placebo and neck plus lactobacillus. Um, Do you think this is something, you know, we talked a lot about prevention, so that's our goal, but could it be used as a rescue?
2: So all wonderful questions. So the first question was, what other diseases might this be able to treat? So since this is a neck symposium, um, and I am a surgeon that takes care of babies who are at high risk of getting neck, my number one priority is necrotizing enterocolitis. But we have done other studies, particularly of a disease um, known as clostridium difficile um, infection, or CDI. And uh, clostridium difficile, of course, is a pathogenic bacteria that results from an imbalance in your microbiome, as does necrotizing enterocolitis. There are microbiome or gut abnormalities in babies who are susceptible to getting neck. But although I mentioned that C. diff affects uh, 7 to 10,000 patients a year, clostridium difficile colitis affects many, many more than mm-hmm. many patients uh, in excess of that And it costs billions of dollars to the healthcare system every year. And it can result, it results from giving patients antibiotics. And you can give patients as little as one dose of almost any antibiotic, and they can get C. diff colitis. And it can be really, really debilitating. And we have some really lovely studies that show that our probiotic preparation can prevent. Animals from getting C. diff colitis and also can rescue animals that already have C. diff colitis. Mm-hmm. So, um, C. diff is a good example of uh, another disease that can be benefited from this therapy. And I can think of others, you know, as well. For instance, inflammatory bowel disease that also is manifested by a lot of inflammation in your intestines. Um, uh, so if anybody listening wants to come and work at my lab and look at those other diseases, please don't hesitate to contact me. So that was one question. And your other question is about rescue. So in our C. diff animal models, we can rescue or, you know, uh, recover animals who already have C. diff before we institute therapy. In our next studies, we really have looked at prevention because it makes, I think that you could easily convince a neonatologist. um, And these are the doctors that are taking care of these babies every day, 24-7, around the clock, 365 days a year. And I'm sure that every time a neonatologist loses a baby to neck, they are just really wanting a drug a yeah. therapy anything that
0: can prevent those babies from it's getting the
2: disease yeah the, this devastating disease so i think it's an it would be a relatively easy sell to a neonatologist um, to convince them to use a therapy if you told them that your therapy is safe it's fda mm-hmm. approved you're giving something that's highly purified we know it's not contaminated and even if you could reduce the incidence of neck let's say by even 25%. A neonatologist would probably buy buy into that therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've really concentrated on prophylaxis, and not so much in uh, rescue at this point. But in older studies, where we looked at things like growth factors or stem cell therapy, they can be used as rescue therapy. So that's mm-hmm. another avenue that we can look at as well. But I'm a firm believer that it's better to stop the baby from getting neck in the first place than to try to treat them. Because once they're at death's door, there is no therapy yeah. that is going to possibly mm-hmm. bring back something that's dead or almost dead.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I'm fascinated by the whole story and your whole journey, mm-hmm. as Daphna mentioned, from this presentation that led you to collaborate with with your the current physicians you're collaborating with to the identification of this this novel thera- therapeutics then to the animal data but i am wondering what is your feeling on the this the journey that you have to go on where you're being asked to study a population that is not the population you originally intended to help Even though you're you're showing, despite all these great outcomes in this population, nonetheless you are then faced with the economical challenges of continuing on this journey. And now you have to become an entrepreneur and Uh and begin. How do you feel about all these detours that you are being forced to take, which sadly enough are exhausting time, which is a resource that a lot of patients and families are desperately needing um, while you go through all these. I'm sorry, you have to go through through all these hoops
2: yeah it's a it's a really challenging situation you're absolutely right so i uh believe that when it comes to science a physician or phd scientist is doing what they need to do in the laboratory and i think it would be really challenging to expect a phd scientist or an md scientist to go out and be able to um garner the money that it costs to bring a drug to fruition clinically. And so I do believe that researchers and biopharmaceutical companies have to work together in order Mm -hmm. to bring new therapies to the bedside. Sometimes the scientists can do it alone, perhaps with devices, it might be a little easier. But with drug development, it's really challenging. And if if as scientific co founders, myself and my two collaborators didn't work with a company to do this with our company is, you know, called Scioto Biosciences, I don't think we would have gotten anywhere near where we got. Now, Uh and I think the NIH even recognizes that because the NIH has grant money that is set aside particularly for academic institutions to collaborate with small biopharmaceutical companies in the early stages of drug development to try to bring novel therapies to the bedside. And we were fortunate; we got two or three of those grants, um, you know, when we started out. And I think that that really, you know, set us on our way to to you know future success, but you know, the re part of research (laughs) means you're redoing it a lot Mm -hmm. and it is challenging and it's not for the light of heart. And I really think that, um, the key to successful research is persistence. Um, it takes a little bit of luck and some serendipity, And Hmm. a lot of persistence and not letting anybody tell you that it can't be done. And if you don't get your NIH grant the first time, reapply and reapply. And, you know, people say that you have to write 10 grants in order to get one funded. And maybe, you know, it might be even worse than that now. But (laughs) I don't think we can ever give up because Uh I'll tell you why. As a surgeon, as a pediatric surgeon, if I'm on call and I get called to the neonatal intensive care unit, because there's a baby with necrotizing enterocolitis that needs surgery, I have to meet with those parents before mm-hmm. the operation. And I have to tell those parents that there's only a 50% chance that their baby is gonna survive. And as a parent, I can't imagine hearing anything much worse than that your baby only has a 50% chance of even living within the next 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And every time we lose a baby to neck that we've operated on, it takes a little bit more out of us. And it just makes me even more inspired and more desperate almost to try to help to find a cure for this, you know, awful disease. So we have to be persistent and almost obstinate and we just can't oh. ever give up because these babies need us. And um, it reminds me how important societies like the next society are. And the most Fascinating thing to me about the next society is the following. As physicians, you and I go to lots of medical meetings. And almost all of the meetings that we go to, we're surrounded by our peers, which are other physicians. And every occasionally once in a while, once in a while an outsider or you know, a non-physician or a non-surgeon in my case is invited to the meeting. But the next society meeting is totally different. I'm completely fascinated by the fact that the society was founded by two mothers that, mm-hmm. you know, were affected. Their families were affected and devastated by necrotizing enterocolitis. So that's the number one thing that I find the most exciting. But it's truly multidisciplinary. And at these symposia are PhD scientists and MD scientists and clinicians taking care of these babies as neonatologists or as pediatric surgeons and nurses and therapists and all kinds of um, other personnel that are affected in having to take care of these babies day by day, not to mention the families that have been affected by the disease. And when you hear their stories, you can't help crying inside because you realize how truly devastating this disease has been to these families. And now we even have members that are survivors of NEC. Mm -hmm. So who better to understand the disease than an actual survivor of the disease Mm -hmm. disease that has now gotten old enough to tell us what their experiences have been as a survivor of NEC. So the multidisciplinary nature of these symposia are uh, is really exciting. And quite frankly, it's eye-opening. And as physicians, we don't often get to go to meetings that are so multidisciplinary in nature, but that's really, really inspiring. And it inspires me for sure to continue <laughs> researching, to continue the work that we're doing. And really another goal important goal of all of us is to train the next generation of physician Mm -hmm. scientists who are going to do this research when we are not able to do it anymore. Because Mm -hmm. as you can see, you know, necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease that was first described like in the 1960s. So Mm -hmm. despite seven decades of research, we still are faced with this horrible disease to which there's still no known cure. So we have to plan for the future as well and train the next generation and inspire them to want to do this research as much as we're doing this research.
0: I think you've painted such a kind of beautiful picture about what makes the next symposium um, so special. And- um, I think you're highlighting, you know, some of the missions, right? They have a number of tracks this year and you have your hands busy with the first two, the, the science and research and the clinical care and practices track. Um, and I wonder, you've spoken a little bit about the difficulties in funding for this type of work, um, specifically and kind of what is our role as, you know, clinicians in, in advocating for, for change? especially to study like orphan diseases.
2: Yeah. I think that we have to be ambassadors. And as I said, um, I think that to generate the kind of funds that it takes these days to, you know, bring something novel to the bedside takes the collaboration with small biopharmaceutical companies who can then get larger biopharmaceutical, you know, pharma companies involved in this technology. Um But it is challenging, and one thing that I've learned from the families of babies affected with neck that we have to keep in mind is that the first time most of these families have heard the words necrotizing enterocolitis was when their baby was diagnosed with the disease. Mm -hmm. And so, what we need to do in our intensive care units, and the Neck Society is highly promoting this, is to get the families involved because. The families are often with those babies 24 hours around the clock at the bedside, and they might be the first person Mm. to notice that something is just not quite right with my baby. Mm. You know, the physicians are taking care of a lot of babies at once, and the nurses have more than one patient at once. And by the time it becomes clinically obvious to the clinician, the disease has already started. And you know, sometimes, as I said, it can be really rampant and have a rapid downhill course. But we should teach the parents what to look for. And when those parents say, you know, something's not quite right with my baby today, we have to listen to that because they may be the first to notice. And perhaps if we notice it early, we can change something in what we're doing to try to alleviate the disease before it really undergoes that rapid downhill spiral. We may not be able to, but at least Mm -hmm. there's a chance. And uh, the other really important contribution that needs to be made to the field is to discover a biomarker for necrotizing enteroclitis. In other Mm -hmm. words, before the baby is really distended and has an x-ray that shows x-ray findings of necrotizing enteroclitis, if there was a urine test or a stool test or a a blood test that could diagnose necrotizing enteroclitis in advance, perhaps several days in advance of the patient becoming clinically ill, that would be a game changer. Because then the FDA would be very happy. Because instead of saying to the FDA that we have to treat 100 babies instead of saving seven of them from getting neck, we can say to the FDA, we have a novel therapy. And it's these seven to 10 babies that we know are at highest risk of getting the disease because we have a blood test that shows that mm-hmm. and then the FDA will be much more amenable to you know novel therapeutics
1: Gail we're coming to the end of our of our discussion and I had one more question for you and it's really related to the fact that I'm fascinated by your duality and in, in your dedication to clinical care and your excellence in basic science research because uh studying animal models in the lab and and taking the time to do all these things is is quite fascinating what is what is your advice for people who are striving to fill your shoes and become both great clinician and expert researchers um how do we how do we get to reach this this balance um in in those two spheres
2: yeah th- uh thanks for asking because I have people that come to my office um not infrequently. They um may be physicians, they may be PhDs, but if they're physicians, I can tell you that if they're interested in having a clinical practice and doing research, someone has told them that it can't be done. That's right. And that really upsets me because I believe that it can be done. And the advantage of being an MD who does research is that we're kind of in the nitty-gritty of it. And we're oh they're taking care of those patients and struggling with problems at the bedside that we can conceive of might have a therapy that we could find in the laboratory. So in terms of significance, the clinician scientist really gets the significance of what diseases really need to have intensive research dedicated towards those diseases. Now, the downside or the advantage for the PhD is that they have a lot more time. They don't have to you know, deal with all the clinical stuff that we have to deal with. And so they have an advantage in terms of time and training. They're extraordinarily well-trained. I can tell you because my husband is a PhD, so I don't mind talking about PhD scientists. <laughs> but but um, don't discount the power of the uh, physician scientist or the surgeon scientist either, mm-hmm. because we really get the clinical significance of what we're doing. So to answer your question, I think that the number one thing that I look at when that person sits down at, at my office table is, do they have the passion and do they have the willpower to make it work? Because it isn't easy. And it's like wearing two hats. It's almost like being schizophrenic. You have your doctor hat and you have your scientist hat, and you have to, you know, kind of find the time to be able to do it all. But if you have a burning desire within you, to do it, then don't let anybody tell you that it cannot be done, because I believe that it can be done. And I'm not minimizing the um, uh, the challenges or the difficulties that one can encounter. I mean, I've been doing this research for 30 years, but there are physician scientists have, that have been doing research for... F- 40 or 50 years and just coming to incredible findings. We have one of them in our research institute now who after 50 years has you know made a discovery that's just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So don't ever give up and don't ever let anybody tell you that it can't be done because it can.
1: Hmm. I love that. I think this is a great uh, touch for us to end on. Uh, Gail, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Uh, we hope to run uh, into you again during the next symposium. And uh, we will link a lot of the uh, papers that you quoted in your presentation on the episode page, so for people who are interested in finding out more about uh, Lactobacillus ruteri and some of the papers that have already been published on the subject, so um, th- we'll, we'll link all that stuff in the episode page. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Great, thank you for your for your time as well. Really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.theincubator.com dash incubator.org. you can also message the show on instagram or x formerly known as twitter at nicu podcast thanks again for listening and see you next time this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice if you have any medical concerns please see your primary care practitioner thank you